0: Join your hearts with me in prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us. Then let us give you glory. Amen. Amen. Irenaeus is an ancient church father and one of the most important theologians and church father at the last quarter of the year uh, or not the year in the 2nd century so he was born in turkey and then as he grew up then he moved and became the bishop of leon in southern france and in 1985 a book of his was published called against heresies and it pointed out the flaws and the errors in the theology of what are called the gnostics the Gnostics are uh, an early church heresy, it became a cult very rapidly growing in the first couple centuries of the church. And so he wrote this book against heresies to speak against those particular uh, heresies. And his book became the foundation for what we now call orthodoxy in the church through, throughout the world. Um, so, and uh, he was very important, and for another reason, and that is. That in his book Against Heresies, he cited every one of the Christian writings that were in existence at the time. And those are the books that became the books of our New Testament. It was the first book to cite all, every one of the books that are, we now call the New Testament. And the, New, the church, when it, when it uh, formed the New Testament, it took his writings and used what he used as holy text to help decide what are the sacred texts that we call the canon that become what we now call the New Testament. So very, very important, uh, just erudite theologian. He is said to have uh, won the crown of martyrdom around 202 A.D. And one of the sayings that is attributed to him is this, this one that's on your screen. The glory of man... I mean, the glory of God is man fully alive. So I hope that that saying will become alive to us as we go through our scripture and elucidate its meaning for us this morning. Our scripture is John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. John chapter 13, begin at verse 31. And when he had gone out, when he has gone out, that's speaking of Judas, the context which I'll go over in a moment, uh, was Jesus in the upper room, and Jesus predicted that someone was going to betray him, and Judas went out, and so this is Judas who's going out. When he went out, speaking of Judas, Jesus said, now, is this, now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I'm with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, and now say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I had loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I said I would set the context for you. I think it's very important in all preaching and Bible study to know the context of a passage. And so I think it's particularly important here in this scripture. The climax of the movie has begun. All of the actors, the protagonists, the antagonists are in place, and the conflict between Jesus and the establishment, both the Jews and the Romans, is in place. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, Well, in a few days hence they will celebrate the Passover. Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and he tells his disciples that they must do what he's done, because no servant is greater than his master. If the master has washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. And then surprisingly, he says to them, that one of you will betray me. Well, naturally, the disciples want to know, who is it? And they ask Jesus, well, Lord, who is it? Tell us who it is. And Jesus said, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread after I dip it in the bowl. And then Jesus takes the piece of bread, dips it in the bowl, and he gives it to Judas. And then he says to Judas, Whatever you have to do, go and do it quickly. And then John puts a, added a little note there and says at the end of the passage before ours, and he went out and it was night. Now that's not just a time designation. That's a literary device of John to say, we're going into a very dark moment in history. The passion of Christ has begun. So that's the context. And then Jesus begins his teaching in the upper room. And he has all of these words, I mean all of these times he uses the word glory. But that's not a word that we're familiar with. It's kind of an old word. It's kind of outdated. It's sort of from the Victorian past. But if we're going to understand this passage, we've got to know what what the scripture means by the word glory. It's a very common word in the Bible, so understanding it will help us understand this passage and, and the rest of scripture. So that's where we're going to begin. We're going to begin with, what does glory mean? The Hebrew word that's translated in English, glory, is kavod, K-A-V-O-D. And it's translated glory, but its root meaning is weighty and heavy. Now, after watching a uh, very dark drama such as Arthur Miller's The Crucible, we may say, whoa, that was a heavy experience, That's a weighty subject. Or, having attended a lecture, we might say that was a very heady experience and it was heavy. That would fit with the Hebrew idea of glory. That whatever receives glory is something that has significance, it has substance. It's not flimsy or light, it's substantial. And so whenever you see glory in it, you know then that this is not something that we deal with lightly. This is very, very important. To solidify this meaning, consider these English synonyms for glory. Hallowed, another old English word. Honored, admired, to elevate, exalt, and radiance. All of those are synonyms for the word glory. I like to say Something has the ability to receive glory when it elicits in us praise. Whatever it may be. You may walk into a room and there's a great large crystal chandelier. And they turn on the chandelier and it begins to shed its radiance through the entire room. And you see all of the colors coming from the reflected off of the faceted glass in the chandelier. And in that radiance, you have a sense of glory, substance, significance. We most likely comment, we would comment on that uh, chandelier to say, it's beautiful. That's a glory moment. On a a day in the middle of winter, I was with a group of college students and we're having a retreat in Yosemite. And we were actually staying in Wawona outside the valley. A big winter storm blew through and dropped three feet of snow that one night. And so that next day then we got up and we drove into the valley. And as you know, that when you're on Highway 41 and you're going into Yosemite Valley, you go through a tunnel. And right after the tunnel, there's a turnout, a parking area that's a viewpoint. And at that viewpoint, you can see all of the Yosemite Valley spread below you, the entire valley all of the peaks probably many of you have been there so we pulled off to view the valley and we looked out there were just scattered clouds moving across the sky the air was cold and crisp and crystal clear and there was a blanket of snow three feet deep across the valley floor el capitan had a cap on it of snow as did did Half Dome in the distance. And then the craggy rocks like the three sisters on our right, in every one of the crags there was snow reflecting off the, the sunshine, reflecting off the snow, and then contrasting with the grays and the browns and the reds of the rock. And in that moment, I said, this is glorious. That was significant, it was heavy, it was weighty, it had radiance. And all of those things add to glory. So if there's something that elicits from us a sense of of significance and substance and beauty and radiance, we call that glory. So Jesus is talking about the glory, the glory of the sun. The glory of the Father. The Son will give glory to the Father. The Father will give glory to the Son. And he goes back and forth with this. And glory is that moment. And I like to, to think of it as when, say, a, a baseball player hits a walk-off home run, a grand slam home run in the ninth, bottom of the ninth inning to win the game. And they run around the bases pointing heavenward. As a symbol to say, I was able to do this because God gave me the ability. What is that? That's a glory moment. He's given glory to God. So this first part is about glory. But being the astute and observant people that you are, you'll probably say, now wait a minute, Dale, hold on, hold on. Jesus isn't talking about beautiful mountain scenes or glorious sunsets or great athletic achievement or weighty movies or beautiful chandeliers. He's not talking about any of that. He's talking about his death, his suffering, his passion. So where's the glory? There is glory in the dark moments of the cross for they show the depth, the extent, the intensity, and the love of God for all humanity. And because he's obedient to the Father and goes to death on the cross, he's showing forth the God's, God's love, and hence the glory belongs to God. That is important, infinitely significant, and very, very heavy stuff. And in his passion, his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ is glorifying himself and God. Then Jesus changes the subject. As he is wont to do. And he tells the disciples, I'm going somewhere where you can't come. Uh, you can't get on the train with me. And then he leaves that subject and he goes to yet another subject uh, about love. So he says, you ought to love one another and the world will know about God if you love one another. So there is a connection here. This passage is, you know, just a few little verses, so you would think there'd be some connection between glory and love, and I think there is. And the apostle Paul shows us that connection when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 32. And he writes So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Paul's writing this in the context of a church conflict, a very deep conflict in Corinth. In fact, it split the church. Some of the new Christians in Corinth couldn't eat meat that was offered as a sacrifice to a pagan idol, because they thought that it would be spirit, the meat would be spiritually contaminated by being offered to, to a pagan god, and so they wouldn't eat it because somehow it would then uh, pollute them uh, spiritually. So they couldn't do it, and they wouldn't do it. But there were other more mature Christians who didn't have any problem with eating meat offered to idols, and so they could go ahead. And It was causing a conflict. Because And they all had their good theological reasons why they should not do it or could do it. And so Paul says to them, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And he goes on to explain, whatever you do, if it's eating meat offered to idols and it's going to offend your, in his words, weaker brother or sister, don't do it just simply don't do it. Now we would have trouble with that in the church in America. Well, all of Americans have trouble with that. But what Paul is saying here is the health of the relationship within the body of Christ are more important than your desires or even your wishes. What's most important is the unity of the body of Christ that you love one another. So the health of the relationships within the church are the principle that Paul is working on. In other words, love one another. Be aware of the other's sensibilities. Avoid violating them. That is the loving thing to do. To consider others before yourself. Now, we have difficulty with that. Putting others first, I mean, it's somewhat unnatural for us. It goes against our grain. It's particularly difficult, I think, here in America because... I believe that we are addicted to rights. And you could just hear those people in Corinth saying, listen, it's my right to eat meat offered to idols. I don't care about them. That's their problem. I'm going to go ahead and eat. I could see the other side saying, well, those people don't understand the significance of offering meat to idols and so obviously they're not good Christians or they wouldn't do it. And everybody's asserting their right. It is my right to do this. And Paul's saying, don't search your rights. It is not loving. It doesn't give glory to God. What does is when you show love. And You say, well, okay, that sounds good, but how can we do that? Well, one of the things that I think helps, and something that that I try to bring to mind uh, occasionally to help me when I'm in a situation where I'm I'm wanting to assert my rights, and that's by remembering that all human beings are created in the image of God. Now, that image, as I say, is broken and shattered. It's not whole. It's kind of like a a silver sterling silver chalice that was willed to you by your grandmother, and you put it in the cupboard, you never use it, you go to the cupboard to, to take it out, and you take it out, and you can't tell the worth of that chalice because it's too tarnished. That's what happens with the kingdom, uh, with the image of God. Yes, we are all created in the image of God, but it becomes tarnished, and we can't see it. It's like an old photograph that has been kept for a number of years and it becomes faded, and you think, well, you know, that's not any good. But if it's the image of God that photograph can be restored and all of its vibrant vibrant colors can be made alive. And just as I said if the kingdom of, I mean if the image of God within us is broken that's not the end it's not shattered it's broken and it can be put into a cast just like a broken leg and it can heal. So we have to remember, even if we don't see it in other people, they all have within them the image of God. And that means every single human being has infinite worth. And so we have to realize that and say, okay, they have the image of God within them. I don't see it right now in their outward behavior, but it's there. And when we work to show them love, we we recognize the intrinsic worth and beauty of them, and then we treat them with respect and dignity, and so we give glory to God. So Paul says, I mean, uh, John writing, has Jesus say, "Love one another." So I say to you, let love begin with us. Now at the beginning I quoted the saying by Irenaeus, the glory of God is man fully alive. This glory and love helps me understand that. To be fully alive is to love God and our neighbor as ourself. It is to see the image of God in others and treat them as a child of God. It is to love one another in the body of Christ. To be fully alive is to live out the image of God that we bear, and as we do, we reflect God's goodness, his grace, and his love to all people, and God receives the glory. You see, the people begin to see what God is like through us, and that's what Jesus says. Love one another so that they may know God. So let us point to the heavens and say, it wasn't because of me, but because of God, that I was enabled and enabled to love others. So our mission on earth is to give glory to God by mimicking the love of God so the world will see the love of God and in that god receives glory. Amen. Amen. Loving and gracious god, we're grateful that every sun, every Sunday as we gather that you speak to us in word and in song. And we're grateful that you've been here today. May we take these words of mine and yours and the scripture and apply them as we live out our lives. For we commit ourselves to you now in this moment, thanking you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.